following is a Sunday sermon from Hope Presbyterian Church of New Braunfels, a community of people gathered to connect to God, to each other, and to their neighbors. For more information, visit www.hopenb.com. Morning, everyone. Wonderful to be with you today. My name is Derek McCollum. If I haven't met you, uh, I look forward to. So please grab me afterwards if we haven't met. That was Mike Habercorn who was leading us uh, in worship this morning. And we are excited to be here, lifting our voices in praise, joining together, uh, enjoying God's table, and now opening God's Word. So we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Luke. If you've got a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 22. We've titled this, this little mini-series within the Gospel of Luke, The, the Journey to, to the Cross, starting when Jesus sets His face toward Jerusalem to accomplish the goal that He came for, to come and bear our sins on His shoulders on the cross. We are marching steadily toward that. As Kara said, Holy Week is approaching soon where we get to focus even more intently on the beautiful truth of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So today, we are going to talk about what it means to follow our servant leader. Luke 22, I'm going to read for us verses 24 to 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the them is the disciples, by the way, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful for your word this morning. We ask that you would do with it as you love to do, that as a double-edged sword it would pierce to bone and marrow, and that, Lord, even as you pierce, you would heal, that your word would be the beautiful balm of the gospel to us, that we might see Jesus in all his service more clearly today. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, My friend Paul Hahn, who many of you know, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in uh, San Antonio, tells a story about being in Knoxville, Tennessee. He was preaching as a guest preacher in a church plant in Knoxville, and it was a church kind of like ours. They met in, you know, a gym or a cafeteria, so they had to set up chairs every Sunday and put those chairs away every Sunday. See, other people get to embrace the joy of setting up chairs as well. And one of these Sundays as he was preaching, in the middle of his sermon, he looked down and in the third row there was Rick Barnes, who is the head coach of the Tennessee Volunteers basketball team used to be the head coach at the University of Texas, really is one of the greatest coaches in a lot of ways in the history of college basketball, probably will end up in the Hall of Fame someday. And so in the middle of this sermon, Paul starts thinking, oh my goodness, there's Rick Barnes. I need to talk to him. Paul had come actually to Knoxville from Austin. They had this Austin to Knoxville connection. 
And so, of course, he finishes his sermon. He's waiting, you know, at the end of the service and thinking, like, I got to go grab Rick Barnes. I got to talk to him. I need to meet this guy. And because he's Paul and everybody loves him, he gets swamped with people, and people are talking to him, and he is obviously engaging in that conversation, and little by little, the time kind of fades away, and he thinks, well, now I've lost my chance to talk to Rick. But as he's gathering up his stuff to go, getting ready to go, he looks out in the corner of his eyes, and there's this guy with his shirt untucked, putting chairs away, stacking up chairs, and it's Rick Barnes stacking up chairs to put them away for this little church plant in Knoxville, Tennessee. Now, that's a fun story, but why is it noteworthy? Why do we kind of smile when we think, oh, that's cool, somebody famous who's kind of getting down to do the regular everyday stuff to serve people? Well, unfortunately, it's noteworthy because it's not all that common, is it? Very oftentimes, greatness is to be achieved in our culture, not in order to serve, but in order to rule, in order to be served. And so what we typically see are those who are famous in our culture actually shying away, not even necessarily associating themselves with the normal people, certainly not wanting to serve them. Jesus tells us in this passage that that is nothing new. This is what he says actually in verse 25. Listen again to verse 25. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus says that the hearts of human beings at their core desire greatness, not so that they might serve, but so that they might rule so that they might rule and be served by others. And of course, Jesus' words play out all throughout history. Jesus says here that they like to call themselves benefactors. Now, that's an interesting word, isn't it? Typically, we think of benefactor as a very positive kind of word. It really just means somebody who, who gives to someone else, who supports someone else. And that's actually what was happening in the ancient world. The rich, the famous, the powerful would give money to the poorer people, those of less fame or wealth or power, and they would give to them. But there were strings attached, as there normally are. See, if I've given you something, if I've given you money, then now you're in my debt. Now I have something that I can kind of wield over you. So very oftentimes that's what would happen is being in someone's debt now, they would use that to manipulate, to control, to raise their power or their fame or their greatness, and oftentimes even abuse. In fact, oftentimes those people that would call themselves benefactors were really tyrants. Again, you see it all throughout history, don't you? Just about 50 years before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar general in the Roman Republic rose to some power and to some fame, but didn't really want to see that power and fame used to serve others, did he? He wanted to rule others, and so he proclaimed himself as a dictator. And then just even after his assassination, Octavian, who was right after him, transformed the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. I've been reading or rereading A Tale of Two Cities lately, and uh, it's gotten me really interested in the French Revolution fascinating things that happened in the French Revolution, maybe fascinating because it's the greatest word, right, is that the benefactors of the day 
the nobility, the French nobility, uh, would do just that. They would actually kind of give out some money, but of course, everyone was in their debt, and they used that debtedness to overcome them, to, to abuse them, to use their power in terrible ways. In fact, the king of France even moved his palace from Paris to Versailles, 12 miles away, just so that he wouldn't have to be with the people of Paris and get himself kind of dirty among them. Of course, the people rose up against that. They didn't like to be abused. They didn't like to be overpowered. So they took control of that power. And what happened then with those amazing triumphs of liberty, right, and equality and fraternity? Did they use that new power to serve? No. As very oftentimes happens, those with newly accumulated power end up pretty bloodthirsty. And so a a reign of terror came down upon France. Or how about Napoleon, right in the midst of it all, who was serving the army, proclaiming those wonderful truths of liberty and equality and fraternity, and ended up, upon gaining some power, proclaiming himself emperor, right back to where they started. The rulers of the Gentiles rule over them. They don't rule to serve. They rule in order to oftentimes abuse. But it's not just the Gentiles, is it? It's the Jews, too, in Jesus' time. If you remember when Jesus is born, Herod, the Jewish king, what does he do? He decides to kill all of the two-year-olds in Israel because he's threatened of, by his of power. He's threatened for his throne. He doesn't want to see a new king rise up. This king that should have been actually keeping the throne warm for the Messiah instead acts out of insecurity and kills anyone who might threaten his power. Or how about the Pharisees of Jesus' day? We talked about it just a few weeks ago, right? Jesus says the Pharisees love these greetings of honor in the marketplace. They love the special seats in the synagogue. Why? Because it makes them feel great, doesn't it? It makes them feel better than everybody else. And in that feeling of being better than everyone else, they can exert some sort of power or control on everyone else. Or how about the disciples. The disciples whom Jesus is speaking to right here, who after being with Jesus for three years, walking with Jesus, listening to Him speak, watching Him work miracles, listening to Him say things like, let the children, the ones with the least power in that society, let the children come to Me, for theirs belongs the kingdom of heaven. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, who by the way, were sitting at the table with Jesus. I didn't read you the context. Let me give you a little bit of context now. These are the verses directly before this. Listen to this. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with Him, and He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples are sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. 
They have just heard Jesus tell them exactly what he came to do. They have just heard Jesus proclaim that he was going to go and lay his life down for them. And they have seen Jesus actually show them what he was going to do. They have been brought into the supper, which is meant to unite them all together. And directly after that, still sitting at that table, probably with some of those crumbs still on their lips, with some of that wine still on their tongue, they begin to argue about who is the greatest. Last week, Russell so beautifully explained to us what it meant to bear our crosses in following Jesus, but you don't see a lot of cross-bearing here, do you? You see a lot of arguing about me over you. How about us? How do we struggle with these same things? In a lot of ways, we're, we're kind of obsessed with greatness, aren't we? I mean, if you, if you eavesdrop into any conversation between two men, about 50% of it is going to be about sports. And about 50% of that conversation is going to be about who's the greatest in sports, right? Is it LeBron or is it Michael? It's Michael. You know, is it Tom Brady or is it Bill Belichick? Is Bill Belichick a great coach or is he terrible without Tom Brady? We love to talk about those things. Who's the best? Let's make a list. Let's make our starting lineups. Let's pick from history and see who we think is going to be on top, right? We love to talk about those things. We love to lift ourselves up as well, not just to talk about other, other people's greatness, but ourselves. If you're a fan of hip-hop, this is embedded in the art form, right, is the discussion about why I'm better than every other rapper that's ever lived. Sometimes it gets a little out of hand. There's a book by a psychologist named Milton Rocek, wrote a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. He was studying these men who he had found to have extreme messianic complexes, all of whom who thought that they truly were God's gift to the world. And so he had this great idea. He said, what if we took all three of these guys and just put them together and let them live with each other for a little while? What would happen then? And that's where it got kind of funny, because you would have things like he would say, tell me, what is it that you've come to do? And then one person would say, well, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, and I have come to save the world. And he would say, how do you know that that's true? And he would say, God told me it was true. And then another one would pipe up and say, I never told him anything, and he's not my son either. We love our delusions of grandeur, don't we? But of course, sometimes it really gets deep into our hearts. It affects me. Why is it that my insides start to get kind of turned up when I hear of a friend of mine who's been asked to sit on an important board or to speak at a conference, and I haven't? Why is it that we love gossip? Isn't it so that we can feel like we have some sort of little bit of knowledge that nobody else has? I've got the info. I've got the scoop. That makes me feel great somewhere just above you. Why is it that we see so many reports of abuse of power even in the church? Why do we love and seek after and desire greatness? I think it's because we're insecure. <laughs> we're insecure people. We're broken. We have some deep wounds. 
And, you know, we think maybe, maybe if I kind of project some sort of greatness, maybe if I project some sort of power over others, maybe if I can lift myself up over everyone else, maybe that will help kind of soothe the woundedness in my heart. Maybe that will somehow cover my wounds. Maybe I won't be so insecure if I can just feel a little greater. But friends, this is not the king that we follow. This is not the way of Jesus. I want you to look again at the next verse here, verse 27. At least. Jesus says this, For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus says to his disciples, by the way, right here in the midst of their arguing, that he, the only one who can claim greatness, that he, the king of all the cosmos, has come to serve, that he, the only one who truly is great among them and among everyone else, the king over all, has come to serve. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus.'" who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus, Paul goes on to say, shows his glory even in his service, in his humility. And probably the place where we see Jesus showing His service the most is actually the place that the thing that happens just before this argument. The Apostle John records for us that in the midst of that Last Supper, where Jesus has gathered His apostles in the upper room, before He institutes the Lord's Supper, He actually enacts something. He shows them who He is as a servant by washing their feet. Listen to John chapter 13 now. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? (laughs) No, they did not. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. During this time, um, they did not sell hiking boots, right? And they did not pave most of the roads. So when you went from place to place, you typically went walking, and you typically went walking in a street that not only was dirty, but also probably had some animal excrement somewhere around there as well. So your feet got dirty. And when you would come to someone's house, the job of the servant was to wash 
your feet so that you could come and sit at the table for dinner. In fact, if you remember the time that Jesus goes to have lunch with Simon the Pharisee, this is this thing that, that Jesus calls out for Simon. You didn't even have somebody wash my feet, right? And this was the job not only of the servant, but really of the lowest servant. If you had more than one servant, this was the guy on the bottom rung that was going to do the foot washing. In fact, Israel, it was actually thought of that a Jew shouldn't even do this. So you would typically have a Gentile servant do the foot washing. This was the job for the intern's intern. There is never a time where you see peers washing one another's feet in the first century. And never, never would you ever see a superior wash the feet of an inferior. In fact, other than John 13, there is no record anywhere of a superior washing an inferior's feet. But this is exactly what Jesus does. He gets down on his knees. He gathers a basin. He gathers a towel, and he grabs the dirty, messy feet of his disciples, and he begins to wash them. I love this quote from a guy named Servian of Gabala. This is 400 A.D. This is what he says. He who wraps the heavens in clouds wrapped round himself a towel. He who pours the water into the rivers and, and the pools tipped water into a basin. And he who before whom every knee bends in heaven and earth and under the earth knelt to wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus, the king of the cosmos, came to serve. The author and pastor Paul Miller tells a story of a small college in Columbia, South Carolina called Columbia International University, and its president or former president, a guy named Robert McQuilkin. McQuilkin had been president there for quite a while. He loved his job. Everything was great. The students and the administration loved him. But his wife, Muriel, of 55 years, got Alzheimer's, and things started to deteriorate quickly. And so he stepped down from his position in order that he might serve his wife full-time. And I want to read, for, read to you from the letter that he sent to the university about this. Recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me and almost none of the time that I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she's lost me, and she always goes in search of me when I leave home. So it's clear to me that she needs me now, full time. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I, hold, as I told the students and the faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. But so does fairness. She's cared for me fully and sacrificially all of these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of her debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there is more. I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, her occasional flashes of that wit that I used to relish so, her happy spirit and her tough resilience in the face of her continual distressing frustration. I don't have to care for her. I get to. It is a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. I don't have to care for her. I get to. That is the kind of Lord and Savior that we have, friends, who says, I don't have to come and serve. I get to. 
I don't have to come and kneel down and wash dirty feet. I don't have to humble myself. I don't have to leave my throne in heaven to come and take on the broken flesh of humankind. I don't have to walk that road to the cross. I don't have to be ridiculed and mocked and beaten. I don't have to be crucified. I want to because I love the people that I'm coming to serve. Friends, that is the beautiful truth this morning, is that Jesus loves to serve. He loves to serve insecure, selfish, greatness seekers like you and me. He loves to get down on His knees and wash not just our feet, but our souls. So how do we respond to a love like that? Well, we respond in serving as well. This is what we read here in verse 26. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Jesus says that those who lead are there to serve. Jesus is not erasing leadership. He is not saying there's no such thing as leadership. What He is doing, though, is radically redefining it. He is radically redefining as leadership, as the search for greatness in order that I might rule, to the search for love and service in order that I might lay down my life for others in following the Lord who has laid down His life for me. And friends, this is the way that Christians are to act. This is the way that our lives are to be shaped, is that we are to become those out of a response to the great love and service of our Savior, desire to love and serve those around us. I have a friend in Baton Rouge. We lived there for almost four years. He's a wonderful guy. We we lived in the same neighborhood. We went to the same church. We hung out together. We loved to build things together. He was an incredible woodworker. He's actually the one who built these beautiful trays and that beautiful lectern there. And I loved to hang out with him because it was cool. He got to teach me fun things like woodworking. But I also just loved to be around him and just watch him work. During the entire time that I lived in Baton Rouge, he was a stay-at-home dad. He didn't get paid for anything that he did. But he was probably the most productive guy I've ever met. He filled all of his time serving his neighbors, serving at church, serving me, serving his family. And I sat and I talked with him one time and I asked him, I was so curious, like, what is it like to kind of be you, to have your job, to be a stay-at-home dad, especially in a culture in which stay-at-home dads are kind of looked sideways upon, right? What's that like? How do you feel about it? And I was really kind of expecting him to, to really say there was some sort of feeling of shame or some sort of feeling of, I wish it were different. But you know what he said? He said, I really feel like my calling is to enable other people to flourish. And so that's what I spend my time doing. My calling is to enable others to flourish. And it hit me so hard, I thought then, isn't that the description of a Christian? Isn't that the calling of a Christian? Isn't that what Jesus is saying right here? Is that the calling of the Christian is to spend our time enabling other people to flourish, serving so that others might be made greater. To be able to say like John the Baptist, I am not the Christ. (laughs) 
May he become greater. May I become less. Let's put some just really specific application on this really quickly here at the end. What do we do with this? Well, here's the first thing that I think that it changes for us, is that it should really influence the way that we choose our leaders in our church. That is the particular context that Jesus is dealing with. He's talking to the disciples, the apostles. These are the leaders of the new church. And so, it changes the way that Christians actually look for and elect and what they expect from their leaders. Are we expecting our leaders to be people who are of great repute in our society, who hold sort of some sort of position of power around us? Or are we looking for people who serve? Are we looking for humble men and women who love to serve? What do we want in our elders? What do we want in our deacons? What do we want in our staff? What do we want in our pastors? What do we want in our lay leaders throughout the church? We want servants. That's the first thing. The second thing, I think, is this, also particular to the context that Jesus is dealing with here, is that it really does change the way that we think about coming for the Lord's Supper. You know, the disciples weren't the only ones who had problems with the Lord's Supper. Many years later, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, his first letter there, and he's dealing actually with the same thing. In the middle of the Lord's Supper, they have divided into classes again. And the rich are going ahead, and they're eating, and they're getting drunk, and they're leaving the poor to fend for themselves. And instead of the unity that is supposed to be proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, they are seeing division. Friends, it cannot be so for us. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are celebrating, yes, our union with Christ, but we're also celebrating our union with one another. The Lord's Supper is the great leveling field. It's where everybody comes as members of this hospital to come and be reminded of the healing grace of the great physician. And we all come broken, and we all come needy, and we don't come with anything in our hands, and we all come together. One of the reasons why we switch up the way that we do the Lord's Supper in Advent and Lent is so that we can even focus a little bit more clearly when we take the bread and we eat it all together. When we take the cup and we eat it all together, we are signifying something really true, that this supper is not primarily a time of individual introspection. It's a time of together unification. Third thing, and final thing I think for us to apply here, we're in the midst of looking for a permanent home. We're looking for a building or for property, a way that we can plant some roots in our city. Why are we doing that? Is it so that we can somehow get out of service? Is this the great panacea for not having to ever put up chairs again? Finally, we can leave chairs in their own place. Or is this actually the place where we can serve? Are we looking for a place where we can dig into our city, love, and serve the people around us? Friends, we follow. We follow a servant leader who's so different from us, who, who, unlike us, does not need to cover his wounds, who, unlike us, does not need to cover his insecurity, but who actually bore wounds to cover us, whose wounds now cover us so that we might be able to lay down our lives for those around us. Let's pray that the Lord, by the power of His Spirit, would enable us to do so even now. Will you pray with me? 
Father in heaven, thank you for sending us Jesus to serve, to meet our deepest needs, to cover our woundedness in ways that we never can with the projections of our greatness. Lord, will you, by the power of your Spirit, enable us, empowered by his grace, to lay down our lives for others? Send us out to do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.